TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Peace is the result of diplomacy, never of war. Professor Jeffrey Sachs, an urgent appeal for peace in Ukraine. Rob Johnson is president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. They publish interviews online and on June 6, 2022, Johnson spoke with Professor of Economics Jeffrey Sachs about Ukraine, the danger of nuclear war inherent in the current U.S.-Russian confrontation, ominously on the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and U.S. exceptionalism. Here's Rob Johnson's warm welcome of Jeffrey Sachs. Jeff, thanks for being here. You've done a tremendous amount of work here at Columbia University, the highest ranking professor. You ran the Earth Institute for many years, currently the president of the U.S. Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And I would say just as a signature, there's a gift that I perceive and that I admire and I try to turn people on to about your career. You always seem to choose important questions. And you seem to zoom in over and over on things that matter, not just to your country or not just to prestige, but to humankind. And, and I greatly admire that. I just want to refer, you've written many, many books. We've talked about the age of globalization uh, in one of our previous episodes together. But the two I underscored today, because the questions related to the Ukraine that I've seen you writing about, to move the world, JFK's quest for peace in 2013, and a new foreign policy beyond American exceptionalism is a prescience. You're seeing ahead of the, the challenges that we're going to have to address. So I'm very excited today that you're with me and we can talk about what you see, what scares you, and what's the way out. Well, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. And thank you for focusing on, uh, on those two books. The book about uh, JFK, uh, which I wrote in 2013, was to commemorate uh, an incredible speech and initiative of President Kennedy in 1963, which was just months after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Now, here we are, Rob, the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, with another kind of showdown between the United States and Russia. And so I'm going back to that speech, to the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, to the lessons that I drew in that book just about every day in my thinking about what uh, events are telling us right now. Uh, the 2019 book, uh, A New Foreign Policy Beyond American Exceptionalism, uh, is also directly core to my thinking right now. I do think the United States doesn't get or accept uh, its uh, realistic, constructive place in the world right now, and that this is uh, at least a, a part of our problem uh, in a world that is uh, increasingly destabilized. I think that both books focus on one fundamental idea, which is that peace is better than war, and peace comes through constructive engagement with the other side. Uh, President Kennedy said in his remarkable speech given at a, 
American University commencement uh, on June 10, 1963, that peace is into some magic solution. It's not an event. Peace is a process, a way of solving problems. Uh, it is a constructive engagement with the other side. It is uh, what I've uh, learned uh, in 21 years of advising uh, the UN leadership. So much, Rob, comes from the unwillingness to really have rules that apply to yourself as well as to others, or to think empathetically, what is the other side thinking? The fact of the matter is, Gorbachev and Yeltsin wanted a common home. Gorbachev, who I regard as the greatest statesman of our age, and who's reviled in Russia for having lost the Soviet uh, Union and, and for inflation and everything else. He's the greatest statesman of our age because he understood that what we needed was peace rather than a cold or hot wars. And he was ready to even let the system fall rather than shoot people uh, to, uh, quote, save the old system. But his idea, which I know was a common home from Rotterdam to Vladivostok, uh, that we have a common European home. I believed it. I went to work for his team in 1991, promoting what we called the, the grand bargain, working with Graham Allison, who was uh, then head of the Kennedy School at Harvard, and Stanley Fisher and others. And we recommended a significant financial assistance program to the Soviet Union to support its economic and political reforms. What was the White House response? Complete yet nothing. Nichevo. Not anything. We're not doing this. Okay, that uh, was a disaster for, uh, I mean, the, the failure of Western support definitely undermined Gorbachev. Uh, Yeltsin emerged uh, after the attempted putsch against uh, Gorbachev, uh, which was in the summer of August uh, 1991. Uh, and then I was contacted by Yeltsin's uh, economic leader, uh, Yegor Gaidar, uh, and I came to Moscow. And Yeltsin said to me uh, and said to others, I want a normal country. I want a democratic country with the market economy, and I want normal relations with the world. I said, absolutely wonderful. <laughs> this is exactly what we want. And, you know, uh, Gaidar, who was uh, then the acting premier of Russia, uh, which was about to become the sovereign country, was meeting with the G7 finance deputies in November 1991. And Russia was running out of foreign exchange reserves. This was a fulminant financial crisis. So I knew a lot about financial crises and their history and their resolution and worked with Poland a couple of years before. And I asked, uh, I suggested to Gaidar, well, look, tell uh, the U.S. and uh, the other six uh, deputy finance ministers, you need a standstill on the debt payments because you're running out of reserves. And uh, Russia is about to become an independent country and we can't have a financial collapse. And he came out of the meeting just absolutely ashen-faced. He said they wouldn't even consider it. They said, you have to pay to the penny. Uh, we will not uh, allow anything right now. 
We're not authorized to allow anything. We will not allow anything. You continue to pay. Russia ran out of reserves at the beginning of 1992 as Yeltsin came to power. In other words, a fulminant financial crisis. I couldn't believe it. I spent two unbelievably frustrating years trying to get the U.S. and the IMF to do something. And they wouldn't do anything. And the truth is, you know, this didn't determine all the future. But God, did it show an attitude of obtuseness. And I didn't appreciate then that Cheney and Wolfowitz were working on their great neocon illusions that now we're the sole superpower. Now we get to do what we want. And they really were working on the next wars because they were going to take away every Soviet ally or Russian ally in the Middle East, knock out uh, Libya, Syria, uh, Iraq. This was a plan already from the early 1990s, according to Wesley Smith. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. I just couldn't believe here we are, this historic moment, a chance to cooperate. And uh, no, we're not going to cooperate. We're going to be the sole superpower. I just found that obtuseness year after year from the U.S. And by the end of the 1990s, I basically had had it because I had seen the U.S. now from all sides. I had seen it from the Latin American perspective. I had seen it from the Central European perspective. I had seen it from the Russian perspective. I'd seen it from the Indonesian perspective in 1997. We just were not a cooperative country that aimed to work with other countries to solve problems. We were the unipolar great power of the world. We were arrogant uh, and we were not paying attention to what other countries said. And this manifested itself in a number of financial debacles of these countries that had big effects on the world. It also manifested in what brings us to the war in Ukraine today, though this is a very unpopular view, and that is NATO enlargement. What John Mearsheimer has said is right. Kissinger said it, and so many other wise people, George Kennan said it, in 1997, don't do this NATO enlargement. It'll lead to a new Cold War. Now we have a hot war. The Secretary of Defense under Clinton was deciding whether to resign or not when he learned that Clinton indeed would go ahead with NATO enlargement because Bill Perry, who was the Secretary of Defense, said, look, we're starting to improve relations with Russia. Do we really need to risk that right now by peremptory moves of NATO enlargement, especially since unequivocally both the Germans and the Americans had promised Gorbachev and then Yeltsin no enlargement in return for uh, German reunification? Then we lied about it. Well, it's not in writing. We brought out all our lawyers, but good historians know uh, that those commitments were made, and we just want to deny that. And given, you know, the predominance of U.S. government in our media, you can tell any story you want. This is absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely true. 
But the long and the short of it, Rob, is that um, NATO enlargement started. We weren't giving any financial help. We were plotting wars against Saddam Hussein, uh, Muammar Gaddafi, Assad, all the allies of the former Soviet Union and, and then of Russia. Uh, Russia has military uh, naval base uh, in in Syria, so Assad was would be our target, and so forth. Actually, Clinton did something that, you know, in, in retrospect, we didn't even see the significance of, but it was hugely significant and misguided. Uh, and that was uh, the war against Serbia in 1999 to uh, force Serbia to give up Kosovo. Uh, so there was a rebellion of the Kosovar Albanians or Albanian Kosovars, I should say, uh, in Serbia. And the U.S. took sides and said, let them break away. Uh, and when Serbia said, no, they're part of Serbia, which is the normal way that diplomacy works, uh, the U.S. bombed uh, Belgrade for several weeks. And we set up the precedent that uh, if you want a breakaway state or you want to weaken the other side, just go bomb them. Uh, and then when Russia says, well, when we do this, you know, we're called the crime of humanity. But when NATO does it, that passes as uh, defending freedom fighters. So isn't there no standard or a double standard? But just to carry on to the, the current day, in the early 2000s, after the Belgrade bombing, and then after 9-11, of course, Bush pushed the enlargement of NATO to, I think, seven countries under his watch, an extraordinary increase of the number of countries, the Baltic states, to begin with the Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Slovenia, if I remember correctly, all during Bush's watch. And then to the shock of the Europeans in NATO in 2008, he said uh, Ukraine and Georgia will become members of NATO. And just take a look at a map, uh, and I encourage everybody to take a look at the map of the Black Sea. What was NATO's idea? What was the U.S. strategic idea? The U.S. strategic idea was basically to own the Black Sea for NATO, because you'd have Turkey, Romania, Bulgaria, Ukraine, and where's Georgia? All the way over on the yeah. eastern side of the Black Sea suddenly is going to be a NATO country, whereas NATO was originally to defend against an invasion by a now defunct, non-existent country in Western Europe. And well, one thing has led to another, and we have the war in Ukraine. And if in our media you say, you know, the United States played a provocative war, you're immediately targeted. Oh, you're, you're just purveying Putin's propaganda. Well, this is really nonsense. We need a serious discussion some context, some history, and we should not have pushed NATO right up against Russia's edge and right around the encirclement of the Black Sea. But with consequences being so dangerous with In regard to nuclear war and now with regard to climate, this is madness and this is not leadership. Why are our leaders so afraid of our population at this juncture? that they have to put on this ritual of toughness as opposed to doing what needs to be done. Did you play the game of risk 
as a, the board yeah, game yeah. risk. Okay, so yeah, the board game risk yeah. really is a is a, a marvelous model of uh, how Washington thinking is. You have the map of the world, and the aim of the game is to have your piece on every space of the world. And uh, as you move forward, if you're successful and your your armies are advancing into new territory, every new territory you have has borders with the enemy. And suddenly, every new border becomes the conflict zone. Now, American strategists get this or behave this way. I think it's, it's mind-boggling because we shouldn't be playing a game of risk where you're trying to conquer the world. But this is the American strategist approach. And a, a good example of it is the Solomon Islands, tiny islands, 3,200 kilometers off the coast of Australia that had the audacity to sign a security pact with China. And suddenly, the United States and Australia are in a tizzy. How dare they? This is a threat to security. And you hear the voices in the U.S. Congress, you know, uh, completely unacceptable uh, that there's a security pact because you give China one inch, they'll take the world. But when the United States says, well, NATO should enlarge <laughs> to Georgia and Ukraine, and Russia says, no, that's a security concern, we laugh. We say, why is it a security concern? We're peace-loving. We're, we're wonderful. And that's their choice. That's not our choice. We didn't say, well, that's the Solomon Islands choice. We dispatched the deputy of the National Security Council to Asia on an urgent mission to express the U.S. displeasure uh, at the Solomon Islands uh, decision to enter this pact with China. And it comes back, by the way, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think we should talk about that because it's absolutely relevant. When uh, Khrushchev put the nuclear weapons in Cuba, all of Kennedy's advisors, except one, except Adlai Stevenson, said from the start, you must attack and take them out. We need a military operation. Many things can be said about that, but I think the bottom line is it would have started World War III because the CIA had every fact wrong. Uh, it thought that the missiles were not yet operational. It completely underestimated, roughly by a factor of seven, how many Soviet troops were actually in Cuba, how many would be killed uh, in a military uh, operation and so forth. Kennedy did a remarkable thing. He kept asking one question. What is in Khrushchev's mind? What is he thinking? Uh, it didn't mean he sympathized with Khrushchev. He was thinking, what is Khrushchev thinking? Does he want war? Uh, what is he trying to prove? Kennedy had to learn, actually, the details that there were U.S. Yes. missiles in Turkey. What are they? Why are they there? Who put them there? Missiles in Turkey pointed right uh, on the border of uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, the U.S. had invaded Cuba in the Bay of Pigs operation and so forth. Right. Kennedy realized, you know what? We got to get out of this by a compromise. Uh, you remove your missiles. We remove our missiles. We commit never to invade Cuba again. And 
That's how the crisis was resolved. It wasn't, we demand victory because Khrushchev has done the most dastardly deed, so we must defeat that man, which is the rhetoric that we have today, must defeat Putin with his 1,600 active nuclear warheads. We must defeat Putin. This is mind-boggling that even on an anniversary like this, 60 years anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis, we're not taking care to learn the real lessons of how you diffuse a crisis. And you start with empathy. You say, if we care about the Solomon Islands, hmm, maybe Russia cares about Ukraine and Georgia in the same way. Maybe we shouldn't be quite so provocative. Maybe we shouldn't be talking about humiliating defeat and so forth. Or maybe we shouldn't be saying this is the the worst crime in modern history when the United States is engaged in so many wars of choice. And maybe we should find a way for both sides to stand down. Well, I see, uh, I remember reading Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine. Absolutely. About that there were many nuclear weapons inside of submarines off the coast of Cuba, and we started dropping depth charges on them. And but for I can't remember the gentleman's name. Yeah, who overruled firing the missiles? Absolutely and, right. And, and this it, guy wouldn't allow the missiles to be shot. But it's that close to extermination. So and, re reading list for everybody listening: Daniel Ellsberg, the Doomsday Machine, and mm -hmm. Martin Sherwin, Gambling mm -hmm. with Armageddon, which is the finest yes. book ever written yes. about the Cuban Missile Crisis, and. Martin Sherwin tells this story that you're so importantly referring to, Rob, and I think it has many lessons. But what happened is, even after Kennedy and Khrushchev had agreed on the way out, a disabled Soviet submarine in the Caribbean that was out of radio contact, so it had no news, it was overheating, it needed to surface just to breathe, uh, sailors were uh, fainting, and it right. started to surface, and a jack in the U.S. Air Force, instead of dropping depth charges, dropped live hand grenades on the submarine uh -huh. as a joke. And he's, you know, we'll uh -huh. scare the hell out of them. So the uh, commander of the vessel ordered a nuclear-tipped torpedo to be put into the torpedo it's bay yeah. and called for its launch. And it happened by coincidence that a Soviet party official, a communist party official, was on that vessel named Antipov. And he had the ability to override the order of the skipper of the submarine. And he said, no, yeah. we're going to surface. We're not going to fire this. And under U.S. military doctrine, described by uh, Ellsberg and by Sherwin, if the U.S. was attacked by a nuclear weapon, even a nuclear-tipped torpedo, our military doctrine said we would unleash the full-scale response of a complete attack on yes. the Soviet Union, China, and all of the other countries of the Soviet system. And the estimate was 700 million dead. But what they didn't know was about nuclear winter because such an attack could have yeah. ended yeah. 
life, uh, human life on the planet. We came within seconds of this. We're stupid yes. if we think that things can't get out of hand. Today, I read about a gen U.S. general saying, well, we may need to uh, break the Soviet blockade of the port uh, of Odessa uh, to let Ukrainian grain supplies. I'm sick of these generals telling us uh, about things that are so unbelievably risky without a proper public debate and understanding, because we could end up in nuclear war. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about the uh, extermination of life on Earth. And I, I, I encourage many people now, I've been doing a little bit of work with a group called the Quincy Institute, Andrew Basevich. Excellent. Yep. Hartung in this group, and uh, exploring some of the ramifications for how our military decisions are being made. And it's really quite... It's, it's really quite haunting to try to understand this dynamic as having anything to do with representing the well-being of America or mankind. And I, I learned in, in thinking about American history and politics, which I've been doing pretty much nonstop for 50 years now, it turns out the president's main job in the world is to keep a foot on the brake of the US military <laughs> machine. Uh, because uh, it's like those old cars that are poorly tuned, that uh, though they're in neutral, they're always revving forward. Uh, and they're always jumping. You take your foot off the brake, the car jumps forward. And good presidents, great presidents, have been the ones to have the foot on the brake, like Kennedy had the foot on the brake in October 1962. Johnson yes. did not have the foot on the brake and we escalated in Vietnam. We know that uh, Bush, <laughs> uh, I don't even know if he was in the driver's seat, much less having a foot on the brake, uh, but we went to so many wars. Obama was no good at this either. So this is a real question. It is like the game of risk. You're always looking, oh, uh, we're you know in Romania and Bulgaria. We're at risk unless we're also in Ukraine. Uh, so we better expand. Well, you know, then there could be uh, losses uh, in the eastern uh, Black Sea and, and the Caucasus. So we better expand to Georgia, et cetera, et cetera, or the Solomon Islands, or what we're doing uh, in East Asia, and just so much chit chat about war with Taiwan and U.S. war with China and Biden piping off and so forth. All of it is provocative. All of it requires actually our good luck that a president says, no, we're not going farther. Korean War, again, had uh, MacArthur had his way, he would have invaded China. Uh, we would have used nuclear weapons at the time. Truman, his uh, right decision, no, stop. He had to fire his top general. This is really the job of, uh, of the American president because the underlying revving machine doesn't have a natural stopping point. Professor Jeffrey Sachs's urgent demand to put the brakes on the revving war machine. This is an excerpt from a 55-minute Zoom conversation that you can see online on the channel of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. The title is Peace is the Result of Diplomacy never of war. 
Jeffrey Sachs is an American economist, academic, public policy analyst, and former director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University. There he also holds the title of university professor. Rob Johnson interviewed him on June 6, 2022. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>